Welcome to Courage in Healthcare, a podcast sponsored by Maxworth Consulting Group. I'm your host, Kyle Worthy. This week, we speak with Dr. Paul Ryman. Dr. Ryman grew up in Ohio, where his father indulged his love of motorcycles by building him a dirt track on their family's farm. Once the track was finished, his father told him he could ride as much as he wanted as long as he followed one simple rule, stay on the dirt and off the roads. This sparked Dr. Ryman's lifelong passion for the sport of motocross. Today, Dr. Ryman is an experienced orthopedic surgeon based in Temecula, California. His passion for motorsports influenced his professional interest from the start. Over the course of his career, he has helped many professional riders recover from injuries to get back on the podium. In 2009, he joined the Alpine Stars Mobile Medical Unit. He currently serves as the unit's lead physician and heads their concussion program. To better understand concussions and to make all sports safer for athletes, his team has partnered with the nation's leading research organizations. In this episode, we speak to him about his love of motorcycles and how he hopes this passion will lead to breakthroughs in concussion research. Well, Dr. Ryman, thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm looking forward to this conversation because I get to talk about motorcycles. So this is excellent. (laughs) This is a lot of fun. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you discovered your love and passion for motorcycles and how you got into the sport of motocross? Okay. The Well, it began a long, a long time ago is it? because I've got a lot of these gray hairs here. But uh, back in Ohio, where I grew up, which is small town Ohio, and my father was a family practitioner. And this was before cell phones, before pagers. He needed a retreat. So he bought 40 acres of farmland about seven miles out of town. Oh, wow. Uh, Put a phone in a cabin, uh, party line, of course. Uh, but that gave me 40 acres uh, to begin to ride on. And myself and three other friends had various forms of motor- dirt bike motorcycles. Okay. Uh, but we had our own private area. Now, we had to clear the weeds and uh, et cetera. Um, my father wasn't crazy about motorcycles, but he said, as long as you don't take it on the street, that's okay. Uh, and so we began to do that. And in fact, one of those friends I still ride with. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, uh, quite, a, quite a few years later. Two of, uh, he and I were running competitive track and cross country, so we didn't need the competitive urge <laughs> as far as going racing, but okay. we just rode yeah. and had a good time and good fellowship. And that's how I began. That's, that's great. So, Dr. Ryman, how has the pa- that passion shaped your professional career as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, it introduced me to a, a field or, or a, uh, events that uh, were not traditional athletic mm-hmm. events. Um, and there, there were a lot of people that were riding dirt bikes that were also doing BMX. Uh, mountain bikes were just beginning to come out at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So I recognized that there was a lot more sports than your traditional stick and ball sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is during my undergraduate uh, uh, time I knew I wanted to be a physician, had decided what kind, then I identified I wanted to be a sports medicine mm-hmm. physician. And at that point in time, the primary care sports uh, physicians were uh, almost non-existent. So orthopedics was the way to get into mm-hmm. it. Um, and um, that's how I uh, ended up deciding to go into orthopedic surgery. Um, I would 
obtained a master's degree from Northwestern. At that point in time, I was also coached track and cross country oh, wow. uh, in one of the local high schools. We had several of our athletes uh, get hurt, and they all went to Dr. Howard Sweeney of Northwestern, and they asked me to come along a couple times. So he became my first mentor in sports medicine. Uh, and trying to identify uh, how to bring that into a career and combine a combination of a profession and a passion together of doing the surgery, but also being involved in the still being involved in the athletics lifetime. Well, this might be a little bit of a fast forward, but how did you start working with the Alpine Stars Medical Unit? Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, well. Mid-career, I made a. Uh, I moved geographically from a practice in Akron, Ohio, out to Temecula, California. Okay. Um, and at that time, I, as my office was being built, literally, <laughs> I was working out of the urgent care center on the first floor. And a high-level motocross athlete came in, and he had an upper respiratory infection and a shoulder injury. So mm-hmm. they had me look at the shoulder. Um, we developed a, immediately a, a high level of mutual respect, mm-hmm. and he began to refer his fellow athletes to me. Oh, wow. um, and at that point in time, I was treating them only as private patients, but when they had a race that was local, I would go, okay. um, usually as, as uh, one of their guests. Um, the uh, medical crew at that point in time was the Asterix Mobile Medical Center under the direction of John Bodner. Mm-hmm. I would go to John at the beginning of the race and tell him, John, I'm here. This is what I'm doing. Uh, So they don't have somebody that's sneaking around and and they're taking care of an athlete on the track that might have had a treatment uh, prior to that time. Um, John kept seeing me at the races and asked, why don't you just come work with us? Uh, And so that's when it began back in uh, 2007. That's really neat. it's got to be your mutual respect that you built with the with the rider had to come from that uh, interest in motorcycles. I'm sure it is. They all asked, "Do you ride?" <laughs> uh, I love that. The and. Um, Basically, what I, I think the reason we developed that mutual respect, uh, an awful lot of their care prior to that time was by orthopedic traumatologists. They would get a broken bone, they would come in the ER, they'd have a rod put down their leg, mm-hmm. and then the surgeon's going, why are you riding motorcycles? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I never asked that question. <laughs> uh, and I used sports medicine principles of the of the uh, of uh particularly the prevention and the rehabilitation, I didn't necessarily change their treatment over what the traumatologist would, but I would rehab them to get them at a higher level before they went back, and I would also do some things to try to prevent the injury from happening in the first place. So from that point, Dr. Ryman, how did you get involved with the concussion program within that medical unit? (laughs) As I mentioned, Dr. John Bodner is the head physician, mm-hmm. and then Dr. Chris Alexander, who's also sports medicine, but more of a sports traumatologist, who's also local here. We are the three lead physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of my interest in a little more global sports medicine, um, and that Dr. Bodner is an ER physician, doesn't have an office to follow people up, okay. uh, uh, we were discussed, and they said, Paul, you're probably the best guy to do it. And I said, fine. Okay. Uh, the I had already taken a fair amount of additional training in concussion work. Uh, it's an integral part of what we do on on the field and and after the after the field. Mm-hmm. 
uh, for athletes, no matter what their sport, whether it's high school football or soccer or, um, and, uh, or any other sport. So at that point in time, we put together a program, and this was back in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, designed for the, uh, the professional athletes of the Supercross Motocross. Um, a little bit challenging uh, in deference to a professional football field where they all go back to the uh, one place, the training room, one practice field. Our athletes race on Saturday in one city, and they'll go home all over the country. So part, the biggest challenge was to find qualified physicians to be able to follow them up in their local area. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and still follow our protocol as far as return to re- riding and return to racing. Hmm. Uh, the, the program was initially set up under, under the auspices of the Asterix Mobile Medical Center. Um, we had some support from a couple of the foundations mm-hmm. that support the, uh, support the sport. Uh, and we've continued that program they, uh, under the Alpine Stars Mobile Medical mm-hmm. Unit, which is the current name of our medical unit. Our sponsor changed, and the Alpine Stars Company brought in a, a, a large amount of funding for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also uh, have additional support from the American Motorcyclist Association, okay. a different AMA, <laughs> yeah. uh, and MX Sports, which sponsors the Outdoor Series. Okay, great. And for everybody that does not know, Alpine Stars is a huge name in, in motorcycles and, and both on-road and off-road. I think they might be involved in some other sports, but particularly in safety gear. Yes, the, it's a company out of Italy, mm-hmm. um, uh, originally with boots, but they uh, supply... Uh, pretty much all the leathers for the uh, road racers, both uh, uh, internationally and, and in the U.S., as, we, as well as boots, chest protectors, helmets, neck protectors, uh, across the board. And they've, uh, uh, they've expanded quite well. Uh, they're a very good company uh, with, a, with their motto being Alpine Stars Protects, which fits right in with what we do with our mobile medical unit. Can you tell us a little bit more about the testing protocols um, and how they came about that you use on your team? Yeah, we we really do use a program very similar to other high risk uh, professional sports. Um, we do use neurocognitive testing, mm-hmm. um, and all athletes are required to have a baseline neurocognitive test, um, and we require them to take it every two years. Our pros can range from age 16 to our old man right now is 37. And we use a test that's available worldwide. Mm-hmm. As, I, as I mentioned in a previous question, our athletes go all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been successful in, in finding a qualified con- uh, concussion physician, uh, either MD or DO, really within an hour of where any of them live. And many of them live out in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the... We use this neurocognitive test as one component of our evaluation and our return to ride program. Uh, if a cushion, a cushion occurs, um, they too take a post-injury test with the same neurocognitive okay. uh, system. And we compare it to the baseline. So mm-hmm. we're comparing Joe to Joe and not Bill to Bill. Um, and, but it, most importantly, it's only part of it and every writer wants to know what their numbers were and if they pass the test why can't why can't they ride Uh, and 
but if an injury occurs, the on-site physician will make the diagnosis. Then they're immediately put into the system. They return home. I'm no, if I'm not at the race, I'm notified uh, that they've sustained this concussion. Uh, I assist them to get into a local individual, and we've been doing it seven years now, so we've got a pretty good network around the country. Um, then they have to see the physician. They have to pass a uh, their physical exam to make sure they're having no residual signs or symptoms. Mm-hmm. They have to have their neurocognitive test go back to baseline. Then we have a return to ride program initially done in a gym, followed by a very closely supervised track program before they're allowed to race. So it's a multifaceted uh, type of situation uh, with multiple uh, the, their own home physician being in charge. Their final check is they have to come back to our mobile medical unit and get poked and prodded one more time. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So this research and data you get to collect, uh, how has that added to the conversation around concussions? Well, the uh, I don't think I have to say it to anybody. The concussions have been at the forefront of sports medicine and lay literature for uh, a good 15, 15 years now. Uh, we're... We're absolutely doing injury data collection. We have a little difficulty because we're only collecting race data, where and uh, many of these will happen in in uh, practice. Um, okay. Thanks to social media, we find out a lot about those practice situations. Oh, okay. So wow. and and those athletes are put in the program as well. <laughs> uh, the. Uh, we have done some uh, some research, but it's limited due to both uh, time and funding. My mm-hmm. practice has tailed off a little bit, so I've got more time, and we're working on the funding side. And uh, But what we've done is we've worked with the engineers and physicians from IndyCar uh, to develop uh, research equipment and protocols. And what we're trying to define is what are the forces on a helmet with normal riding, mm-hmm. let alone crashing. Yeah. Uh, and if we don't know what the forces are, how can we design better helmets? Uh, we, um, all our races are televised, so we do have the ability to do video analysis of crashes. Uh, but a crash can be spectacular and nothing happens. No injury occurs. A crash can be minor and they have a concussion. Uh, and that's not any different than what you would see in a football game or a soccer game. True. Yeah, that, that makes uh, sense. So the, uh, but we're a lot, uh, and this is just not our research, but a lot of research uh, in the field have been looking at the forces, not only linear, which is a, would be a direct blow to the front of the head, but the rotation how the head rotates and how the brain rotates inside the skull and how we can reduce those forces. Is that the, um, the research that I've seen around MIPS and those helmet systems, yes. specifically bicycling, I think, is, is, has right. a lot of MIPS systems. I haven't seen them so much in uh, motorcycle helmets yet. Uh, is, is that the kind of the same concept or the well, same idea? N- number one, they are in motorcycle okay. helmets, right. and the system that is in bike in cycling, particularly mountain biking, came from motorcycles. Interesting. Okay. Uh, All right. The first helmet uh, helmet brand that really looked at this and came out with a new design was the sixty helmet, which is not a MIPS system, uh, and it's a where uh, inside a helmet they there's a layer of polystyrene, which commonly known as styrofoam. Uh, 
and it was a single layer uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. What the 60 people did uh, with their engineers mm-hmm. uh, is decided that that didn't didn't do very well for a rotational component to the to the injury, uh, and that their video analysis showed that many of these injuries were low speed rotational problems. So they took the polystyrene, cut it in half, put elastomers, um, uh, a rubberized elastomer in between the two layers to allow for that rotation. Uh, all the certification testing that's done is a uh, designed to prevent death mm-hmm. and to uh, designed to prevent high-speed, high-force crashes. Right. And the right answer is probably somewhere in between. Right, um, okay. Now, the MIPS system is another system that's a proprietary system that is sold to a lot of different companies uh, that are now using. Uh, uh, the Bell Helmet Company has an entirely different system, and the Fly Company, uh, Helmet Company, just came out with another type of system, all designed to take care of both these linear and rotational forces. Uh, the... 6D has been out, I believe, since 2014, and the others more recently than that. The uh, other, uh, most of the companies that have taken any of these new systems have put it into their mountain bike line. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, and they're looking to put it into the street line. However, the forces on a street rider are going to be very different. Uh, the downside to a lot of these is the helmets three or four millimeters bigger than the usual helmet and that not heavier, just bigger in diameter. And a lot of riders don't like that. I've, I've heard that complaint that even, even, you know, me being primarily a street rider that you hear people say, well, this helmet looks like a space helmet or a Martian, you know, I'm a Martian and I'm like, well, is it safe? (laughs) You know, that's interesting. It it is safe. You would notice it probably your first 20 minutes of riding. And after that, you're just going to go out and have a good time and not, not know that there's a difference. We, with that, um, the concern biomechanically with that increase in size, would that cause more rotational forces and, uh, to the helmet itself, which might uh, go to the neck. We have not seen that increase whatsoever. What would you say has been the biggest improvement in rider safety that has come out of all these discussion and research we've had around concussions in the last few years? I think the biggest thing is just that awareness in that people uh, have figured out this is not a small-time or benign problem. Uh, the the cliché words of getting your bell rung, or in motocross they call it taking a dirt nap, uh, the means a lot. And there can be short-term problems and there can be long-term problems. Uh, and that the concussion is not just affect where, if you know where you're at, but it affects your vision, your balance, your auditory system, and a lot of different things. And if you're riding a dirt bike and you have a visual problem or a balance problem, you're either going to hurt yourself again or hurt somebody else. It may not be another concussion, but it'll be a, a mm. ankle injury, wrist injury, or, or whatever. Be coming to see you for other reasons. Right. So the I, I think the, the awareness is the biggest thing. And again, over the uh, really over the last five to seven years, has uh, because of this awareness is the helmet technology to try to. Um, um, uh, number one, 
either reduce the uh, prevalence or incidence of concussions or minimally reduce the magnitude of the injury uh, if or when it occurs. So what do you think uh, young uh, parents or young riders uh, and parents of those riders should know about the safety and risk factors that we were discussing around concussions if they're thinking about getting into the sport or they're new to the sport? Well, and I think there are going to be more young people coming into the sport. They're just out over the last couple months is, a, I believe, three or four models of electric mini bikes, mm-hmm. uh, which are compatible with riding in your backyard with neighbors who don't like motorcycle noise. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the biggest thing is getting them with proper equipment. Um, and that includes a, 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 a helmet that's properly fitted, a bike that's appropriate for their size, mm-hmm. um, and other protective equipment for the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. Whether you're riding street or dirt, there's a cliche, all the gear, all the time. Uh, and it's very important to do so. Um, I have a, uh, a lot of cliches I use with people, and that's one is that the rider athlete needs to be prepared to ride in, uh, from a physical uh, standpoint. They need to be in shape to ride, not ride to get in shape. Mm. Uh, and the size of the, the motorcycle needs to be appropriate. Uh, when it gets to the racing side, the American Motorcycle Association has very strict criteria what ages race what size bikes. Now, their classification starts as low as age four. That's amazing. Uh, wow. And the... Uh, and other things that can be helpful, pre-training, working on the balance, working on the control, using BMX or mountain bikes mm-hmm. uh, can really help train those skills at a little bit lower speed. <laughs> uh, they, they can still have an injury, they can, but most importantly, they can still have fun while they're doing it, while they're developing their skills. Uh, and you can use skill development as a goals to be able to get on the bike they really want to get on, which is the, the, the motocross bike. Um, I would also, before they start racing, take them to races, uh, whether it be the professional races or the local races. So they see what it's about to make sure your child's comfortable with all this. They may just be comfortable play riding. And if that's the case, you're, everybody's still one. That's okay. Yeah. Everybody's still one. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ryman, how can these lessons that we've learned uh, through the research and all the work that you've been, you've been doing, can, how can those lessons be applied maybe to other folks living active lifestyles? And there are extremely large number of those, and they should. Uh, and there's, you know, there's some sports that are at risk. There's others that are, that are not. Um, I've had a cross-country runner with a concussion. Uh, Wow. The uh, and it can happen, mm-hmm. frisbee golfers, uh, things that you would not think would be at risk uh, sports. But the biggest thing is education. Uh, it, have them be aware that it can occur. Um, and some examples of uh, those sports uh, would be uh, bicycling of any form, whether it be road or mountain or BMX. Equestrian is a is a big at risk. Uh, the, uh, and that's whether it's a polo or a show jumping uh, or just trail riding. Uh, water sports, um, uh, such as water polo, surfing, um, 
those type of things, rock climbing, and really any of the action sports. Um, there's, a, there's a large movement. We have a local neurosurgeon who's very much involved in this uh, with the martial arts, mixed, uh, mixed martial arts, the octagon people in boxing, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where they have very strict criteria. If they have a head injury, what do they have to do and what are disqualifications and what are not? And that needs to be done. You know, everybody, there's a ton of people taking care of the pros, but it's looking at the people to take care of the amateurs, to get the amateur education. Uh, California law has actually helped us with that. That I, I, All these little mini bike riders I have to go out and educate this year. Uh, so that, And that's okay. So uh, it's protect. Sports-specific protective, uh, protective equipment and education, I think, are the biggest things. And not be afraid to steal from other sports mm-hmm. uh, on the ideas. We just uh, uh, we didn't steal it, but they, our flat-track motorcycle racers were having some problems uh, with the chest. So we've uh, basically, uh, not me, but other people have designed a chest protector extremely similar to those used by the rotary, rodeo riders. Interesting. Uh, and you can, mo- you can modify those, uh-huh. and you don't have to just, doesn't have to say motorcycle on it, doesn't yeah. have to say football on it, uh, you know, be inventive. Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because uh, so many, the, the discussion nationally around concussions has been so much focused on football, the NFL, and these mm-hmm. high, high level uh, sports. Uh, or, or very visible sports on television, and when the equestrian rider is going to go out for a trail ride and just, you know, relax on a Sunday afternoon, or you know, or a street rider, uh, and if they live in one of those states that do not require a helmet, they or or maybe they don't put uh, the jacket on; they're just going to wear their t-shirt down to you know the the uh, the gas station and ride right. back. Um, they don't think about those things and how that might be applied to you. That's very interesting, all the sports that, uh, that definitely come into play. Right, and we have to be ready at any time, as you mentioned, whether it's a, you, you're doing a competition or whether you're going, going to the local gas station or going around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad stuff can happen and be protected when, to make sure it doesn't uh, happen to you or it's minimized. Mm-hmm. Well, in conclusion, Dr. Ryman, what are your hopes for the future of concussion research and maybe even uh, safety uh, in in your sport, motocross, motorcycling, and maybe other sports? Um, there's a tremendous amount of research being done at this time across the board, um, and not only by um, manufacturers, but different universities and combination thereof. Mm-hmm. And some of the certifying um organizations are also doing it. There's an organization called the ASTM, which is a materials certifying organization. They have funded research uh, relating to protective equipment, particularly uh, helmets. But the biggest thing is, is would be research and prevention of the injury from happening in the first place outside of giving up the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and, uh, and looking at the biomechanical and the physiologic basis of not only the acute concussion, how long does it last? What does it affect? We're learning more and more, but there's still a tremendous amount we don't learn, we don't know. And then chronic concussion. If you have re- repetitive uh, concussions, or who is at risk for having chronic problems with their first or single concussion? Uh, 
safety equipment. Uh, no question about that. It's sport-specific and reduces the incidence and or the magnitude of the injuries. Uh, is a, it's a really strong focus, not just in football, but in hockey helmets, um, in motorcycle helmets, lacrosse helmets, any sport that involves wearing a helmet. Looking at what might be applicable in soccer, uh, the most popular game in the world. Uh, yeah, interesting. The looking at the individual sport for rule changes, mm-hmm. and that's already occurred uh, in hockey. They've, uh, I believe, it's under the age of fourteen and maybe twelve. They've outlawed checking in soccer. They've outlawed heading for young uh, athletes. In motorcycle racings, they limit the size of the bike. Uh, anyone can ride at any one particular age. A huge piece of research that's being done uh, by multiple university settings are trying to determine what is known as a biological blood marker. In other words, can you get a blood test to tell you whether you have a concussion or whether you've recovered from a concussion? Uh, there's a lot, uh, quoting a friend of mine, there's a lot in the uh, in the loops, but nothing's ready for prime time yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, uh, and the, it's, if we can get those, that will help tremendously because right now everything is, uh, it's not subjective, but it's based on physical exam, neurocognitive tests are good, but they're not uh, the bottom line. Uh, And if we can add to that uh, the blood biomarkers, that would be extremely exciting. Um, And then finally, how to identify the research for on or or identify the individual that's at risk for permanent damage, Mm. uh, whether because of what they've had or what they might have. And the term that's used now is chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. most people are aware of that from watching the movie Concussion uh, based on the pro football players. And if we can identify that patient at risk early, then we can have early intervention. Uh, and that may, wh- whether it's additional protective equipment, giving up the sport, or things down the road, whether they be medications uh, or uh, brain training, etc., um, to to uh, help prevent that long-term problem and, uh, and really premature dementia. Well, Dr. Ryman, thanks so much for being here with us today and taking the time to talk about this. It was, you know, of course, a fascinating subject to me as a writer, and I hope other folks can learn from it. Uh, and we look forward to seeing more great things from, from what you're doing. Okay. Kyle, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Thank you for listening to this episode of Courage in Healthcare. We'd like to thank Dr. Ryman for sharing his story. And if you have a story that would inspire other leaders in the healthcare community, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Kyle Worthy with Maxworth Consulting Group.